This is episode 129 of the Relate Podcast on holding big tech accountable with Joe Toscano. We are spending more and more time in the online world, looking through our screens and increasingly disconnected with those around us. But studies have proven that it's real-life meaningful relationships that bring us the most joy and happiness. It's all about human connection and conversing with people from a variety of backgrounds. Worlds change when eyes meet. So let's sit down and relate. Hello, hello, hello. I am your host, Patrick McAndrew, and welcome to another episode of the Relate Podcast. We have an amazing guest joining us for today's episode. He was recently featured on the very popular documentary, The Social Dilemma, and he is an award-winning designer, published author, and international keynote speaker who previously consulted for Google in Mountain View, California. His name? Joe Toscano. Joe Toscano is joining us on the Relate Podcast, and I'm very excited As many of you know, I am very passionate about the issues that Joe is tackling head-on in his career. I think that our relationship to technology has obviously evolved a lot over time, but it's something that we really need to start looking at critically in our day-to-day lives because it's directly impacting the decisions we make, the behaviors we inhibit. And so Joe and I really dive deep into what this conversation means for us in the long run. Joe actually left consulting for Google because he didn't believe in the way the industry treated society and felt the issues needed to be addressed through innovation from the outside. And really to tackle this issue, Joe has written an amazing book called Automating Humanity, which I highly recommend checking out. And he also started the Better Ethics and Consumer Outcomes Network, Beacon. He also has written for Forbes, is a member of the World Economic Forum's Steering Committee for Data Protection, and... He has this amazing TEDx talk, highly recommend checking it out, called Want to Work for Google? You already do. I won't spoil what the talk is about. You have to go check it out. It's very insightful. And specifically for today's episode of Relate, we cover a lot of what Joe is doing in the tech field today. Joe talks to us about how the internet has become a collective conscience of the world how user research is psychological research, how the tiny fundamental issues in technology lead to larger issues, and how we need to keep accountable both big tech as well as ourselves as individuals. Joe also mentions how we really have lost a sense of our community, how we need to tap into this again, and why this is so important as we progress as a society. If you like this episode and you think it might resonate with a friend of yours, please send it their way. Head on over to Apple Podcasts, leave me a review, let me know your thoughts, or if you have the Anchor app, feel free to call in and leave me a voicemail. I would love to hear from you. 
So, with all of that said, and without further ado, let me please introduce our guest for today's episode of Relate, Joe Toscano. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Relate podcast. Today's guest is Joe Toscano. Joe, thanks so much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat. Yeah, I'm I'm very excited to talk with you. You're really uh, coming off of this stride with the social dilemma just coming out this past week or two. And it's, uh, as we were discussing before we started recording, it's really this uh, amazing film that is bringing awareness to to the general public about what technology and big tech companies are really doing kind of behind the scenes without of a lot without a lot of us really realizing it and you've been working in this space for uh, uh, quite a while now and initially working for Google but then jumping ship being one of these guys who was really noticing the the issues that were taking place and are now doing some amazing work trying to educate people on what they can do to better educate themselves and and uh, really work with these issues that are so prevalent in our day and age today. So I'm very excited to dive into a deeper conversation with you about this. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited to chat. And um, just so I can, I do want to clarify one thing because I get this pointed out a lot uh, if I don't. Uh, I was a consultant for Google, so I wasn't directly working under contract as a day-to-day employee at Google. I was an embedded consultant four or five days a week on campus. I was effectively a day-to-day employee, but um, just make that note out there that, uh, yeah, it was a consulting role, which also gave me a unique perspective. That's a big reason why I stepped out. You know, we were overseeing business practices in, in various arms of the company versus the day-to-day employee who just works on one product every single day and and often can become siloed because of that. Um, so seeing the system of Google from that perspective uh, and and then peeling back the layers and comparing and contrasting different companies in Silicon Valley, um, that's really what drove me to step out and, and speak about these issues because it's not just Google. It's a systemic issue within the, the technology industry. And yeah, I'm glad the movie's out. I'm really excited seeing literally thousands of people, millions of people reacting to it, but thousands of people reaching out to me and uh, very excited to chat about it. Yeah, I think that I'm glad that you mentioned too, that you worked as a consultant. That that must have been fascinating because as opposed to being, you know, your average employee who's in the the day to day, you know, the the cog of the, the machine, so to speak, I feel, or at least I imagine that as a consultant, you really looked at Google from this big picture perspective. And so with that said, I guess both as your work as a consultant, what what was that process like? And then also taking maybe a couple steps back before that, I would love for you to share with listeners just a little bit about yourself and how you ended up getting into the technology field. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, well, let, let me start with, I guess, how I got into it. Um, and I'll take you quite a ways back to college. Um, I Going into college, I was a math guy. I graduated high school, had a 35 on the math section. My ACT was put, you know, like missed like two questions, you know, like was pushed into um, 
immediately by advisors in college in Nebraska, you know, I'm from Nebraska and uh, there's no conceptualization of computer science at that point in history in Nebraska is very rudimentary. Um, there was really no understanding of what mathematics could be used beyond um, what they told me, which was you should go to college to be a math professor. And I <laughs> immediately rejected that idea uh, and considered myself peaked out in math in my life. And so I worked to actually expand my horizons. Uh, and I ended up pivoting my life at that point into the social sciences. Um, I was a young researcher on campus. After that, I, I got into psychology research. So that's where my I have a background in data science. Uh, from that perspective, I spent a couple years at uh, the UCARE program, which is uh, the, one of the most prestigious research programs on campus in Nebraska, um, was doing graduate level research as a sophomore, you know, because of my math background and things like that. So um, I went into that and I, and I started to get into what was the emerging field of behavioral economics, was really interested in that. And I saw this parallel world being built on the internet, which was effectively like the collective conscious of the world. I saw this as a very exciting opportunity to not just study behavioral economics in a research perspective, but to actually create products that positively impact the world, leveraging these practices uh, to, you know, effectively help people uh, change the world on a day-to-day -day basis. And yeah, so I started to pursue that. I picked up coding in my free time. I had done some computer science in high school. I took, you know, very early I think it was probably C sharp or something at the time, you know, it was 12 years ago, 15 years ago. Um, and from that, I was like, yeah, this definitely isn't my thing. But when I went to go pick up, you know, HTML, CSS, front end code later on, um, that just seemed super easy to me. So I really picked that up um, and started running with that in my free time and then decided through doing that, that I was going to pick up a second degree uh, to learn how to do this. Uh, and that's why I have, ironically, a second degree in bachelor's of journalism, um, which to a lot of people is like, oh, well, you're just a journalist. Um, actually, I had to go that route because that was the only college at the University of Nebraska that taught anything about how to code. Interesting. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah, it was visual literacy. That's what it was called. Huh. Um, and so we learned how to um, imagine right from a journalist perspective, we learned how to um, communicate through photography, videography, code, and uh, what was the last one? I forget the last one, but four different mediums. Um, obviously, I didn't care as much about the fourth medium. Um, but <laughs> yeah, so, so I built my, my background off of that and, and blended the two, you know. So um, in, in doing this, I also had to take, you know, basics of like mass media law, mass media ethics, um, I've been through IRB boards. I've done a lot of this stuff. And so it all really combined into what is really uh, a modern day job of, of UX research and uh, product design and engineering. Um, and I didn't know it at the time that that's what I'd be doing. I just kind of followed my passions and, and, and I saw a vision of like, this is where things are going to head, but there's not really a set curriculum for it. So how do I like piecemeal this together? Um, over time, I, I started to work. My first jobs were as a creative technologist doing code. Um, and then I realized very early, well, this is going to get automated. And if I'm coding the systems that are going to code the systems, why don't I get into something that's a little more long term? And that's where I got into information architecture, uh, UX design, product design, stuff like that, because 
I ultimately felt that while the automation, the, the building of code uh, code bases and whatnot may ultimately become automated or at least graphical, right? We're now seeing a lot of graphical coding systems like Webflow, um, even WordPress is, is a way that the average person can pick up and do code. Um, yeah, so I moved into information architecture and and, and for uh, and for those of our listeners who are unfamiliar what a UX designer is, maybe you could just take a minute to explain what what's involved in that role. Sure, yeah. So and this is where I'm saying it really came together of everything I was doing. Um a UX researcher, so for those of you unaware, um stands for user experience designer. Um effectively in the words itself, you are designing the experience of the end user. Um, you are creating the system, the interface, the buttons, the um, interactions, the everything that the end user sees and interacts with that allows them to engage and have an experience uh, with the system, the backend computing system, right? Like uh, early days of, of what we would call UX in computing was binary. You had to learn how to write in machine language in order to use the machine. Uh, in the 60s, 70s, they started to come out with, you know, early versions of graphical computing, what we call GUI or WYSIWYGs. Um, and then at that point, you know, people were starting to be able to click on buttons or do different things instead of having to write in code to use a computer. Um, that didn't really become popular until the 80s, but <clears throat> at that point, you know, the early days of Apple, we saw, we saw the what became the paradigm shift in graphical computing, where literally anyone could use a computer at that point, right? Um, and that's kind of where most UX sits, is at the uh, graphical computing aspect uh, or, or, or paradigm. Um, there are now a lot of different versions of it, which we probably don't really need to get to the depths of those complexities now. But effectively, yeah, that's what UX design is. It's leveraging, and for me, it's leveraging my background in psychology and social sciences, as well as my knowledge of code and design and putting them together to help make the experience better, more enjoyable, more engaging, whatever it may be. So then you took that experience with you and did you then go to Silicon Valley or no, 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 from no. Nebraska? Um, I actually never thought I was going to want to go to a big city, to be honest with you. Um, being from Omaha, it's, you know, right now, even not even quite a million people in the whole metro. So um, it's not a big place. Um, my first step, though, because um, coming out of Nebraska, like I said, the college was not like in, in still to this day, it's not really prepared to create technologists. Um, it is evolving a lot, but it was different back then. And, and that's a reflection of the culture. Right. Um, and so at the time I was like, there's no jobs here for what I want to do. Um, I have, I have to get out if I want to do this. Um, I, and in doing that, I immediately moved to Colorado, um, to search for opportunity, which was not supported by my family, uh, at all. Uh, it was, uh, uh my parents are, uh, you know, not college graduates. They're great people, but like, didn't understand at all what I was trying to do. Um, which is very reasonable. A lot of people still don't understand what I do. Um, but, you know, they're looking for like, you should be a doctor, you should be a lawyer, you should be a whatever, something we understand and you're really smart and why don't you do this the safe, stable way? Um, so they're just concerned parents. But yeah, didn't didn't support it. So I moved out and it was very like, 
hard on me for uh, and my family because it caused a lot of friction for quite some time. But yeah, I started to look for for jobs out there, and I eventually got one working for a company called Made, um, where I worked under some really great technologists. Moved quickly into another company called QuickLeft, which has since been acquired by Cognizant, very large uh, technology firm. Um, and at that role, that's where I really started to, um, I guess, accelerate my career. I was tossed into a role that I was one of two designers uh, on, on an overarching team of like 35 engineers, you know? So we, we had a lot of work. And, wow. and I could, and the reason I worked so well with them and the reason why they hired me was because I knew code. So I could speak with the engineers, unlike a lot of designers, you know, um, and that's really where I've made my career is being able to take the design knowledge and language and translate it and work seamlessly with engineers, saving companies both time and money by creating modular processes that are repeatable and expandable and, and whatnot, you know. Um, and so, yeah, and, and also because I was one of two, I played a very senior role. You know, I was sitting in at 25 years old on uh, what would ultimately become, you know, uh, million dollar sales deals and, and really uh, creating creating a lot of attention also to the company because of my writing and uh, my expertise taking root in in some of the early, I guess, you know, medium blogging communities, things like that, um, where I've eventually got picked up by larger global publications and expanded my reach and help that company, you know, my company quick left at the time also attract new clients. So um, my responsibilities as an individual grew a lot in that role. Uh, my understanding of the world and like as a responsible adult really grew a lot in that role as well, because I was pushed into something so senior. Um, and, and, but what happened was the company was going through some, some growth at the time, some uh, wanting to expand leadership was misaligned on different things. Um, you know, it was great day to day. Like I, I loved the people that I worked with. It, I still look back and say that was one of the most enjoyable employment experiences I've ever had. But uh, I could tell by being in the sales meeting, by doing a lot of these like senior level things, I was like, something's going on and I'm not quite sure. So I started to look for another job um, and, and, and I ended up getting picked up by a, a company called RGA, where I was going to be an embedded consultant for Google. Um, and right literally as I <clears throat> told them at Quick Left that I got this job, they pulled me aside. I was, I remember the day distinctly. I was walking in that day. My boss met me at the door knowing that I had got a new job and said, you don't need to be here today. And I was like, what's going on? What do you mean I don't need to be here today? He goes, well, we just got acquired by Cognizant. And so because you're, you know, moving to transition to another company, um, you don't need to be hearing all the, you know, um, proprietary and, and whatnot, legally protected knowledge that they're now transferring to us. So, um, just take the day off and then we'll catch back up. But yeah, it was, it was crazy. There was a lot of growth in that role for me. I, I learned a lot um, both as like a student of the art, but also as a business person and uh, young professional moved on to Google after that uh, RGA, I suppose, but like working almost full time at Google is four or five days a week. I would, you know, I'd wake up at six o'clock. I'd get on a bus by six 30. I'd be on campus by seven 30 or eight work all day. Uh, work out afterwards, get dinner or something, uh, get back on the bus and be home by eight or nine at night. Uh, that was five days a week. Wow. Huh. And, and 
And was this, I guess, at this point, are you in California or do they? Uh, I was in California, yes. I was working, I was living in, living in San Francisco, working every day in Mountain View, 38,000 people on campus. Like I had Google badge, had all the rights to all the gyms, all the restaurants, all the, everything that a Google employee has. Um, I, I just, I always preface that because I think saying I was a Google employee uh, leads people astray. Uh, I, I definitely had all the benefits. I was on campus. I spoke and integrated with their teams. You know, I even had uh, heads of different departments reaching out to me because of my writing and, and wanting to learn more and integrate deeper with their teams. Um, but yeah, I, I always preface that just because I think it's the right thing to do. And so you're working as this consultant. You're going to Google four or five times a day. You're getting into this routine. And so then what was it as your work as a consultant that really flicked the switch for you? There's a lot of things. Um, one of the biggest was the way that user research was done. Uh, <clears throat> having had previous research experience in an academic environment with an IRB and all these different things, one of the fundamental flaws that bothered me, and this again is industry-wide, not just at Google, <laughs> is that user research is effectively uh, strategic psychological research, things that need to be passed through an IRB. Um, but we've created this industry out of, you know, the motive of move fast and break things where every designer becomes a researcher without any training in ethics, without any training in best practices on how to ask questions or do any of these things. Um, and, and I'm not, and I definitely am not here to say any of those people are evil. I just saw a fundamental flaw in the fact that like we need enhanced training. Some of these jobs, I personally believe, need licenses nowadays, uh, or at least need some kind of uh, guaranteed trainings for these people. Uh, because a designer, it, in most cases, historically, a designer uh, does not have the the data research background that like someone like myself does. There are definitely a good chunk of us in the industry that do, but I would say 80 plus percent of the designers that are adopting into these roles do not have that training, you know? Um, and, and that becomes problematic because then what that trickles into is people creating questions that are self-reinforcing, right? We have a goal as a business, so let's ask a question in a way that is going to get us the answer we want. Uh, and that's not, not, like I said, not at all because they're bad people or they're evil. It's just simply they've never been trained. You know, it's it's a it's literally like academics, PhDs spend literally years, decades refining the way they ask questions and figuring out better ways to, uh, you know, normalize data sets and clean things and 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 make sure that what they're doing is safe, right? Uh, these are traditionally people, you know, the designers in the industry are people who are used to coming up and, and creating mock-ups in InDesign uh, or uh, Illustrator or Sketch nowadays, things like that. And, and um, it's just not their background, you know? And so it creates problems where like a simple example I bring up in my book and I like to talk about um, is, for example, uh, and I don't know if they changed this yet or not, but when I left, and I documented this and everything. Um, if you were to use Facebook's, messenger platform to make a phone call at the time uh the and, and still to this day they ask for your feedback right we've all seen those forms uh we've all seen like, how is the call quality 
So I'm pulling up right, in my yeah. book right now just to get make sure I say the exact five-star rating system that they use. Give me one second. There you go. Um, so I'll give you a simple example here. Now, what it used to be, and I think it still is to this day, uh, the five stars, right? So uh, a lot of people think, oh, well, it's five stars, so that's a problem. That's That's really not the problem. The problem is that the rating system that they've created to get their feedback goes like this. Poor, fair, good, very good, and excellent. Do you hear the problem? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's like a, a, a bunch of different options for good or excellent or... Well, so here, and, and this is a simple problem, right? This is a very fundamental thing that a lot of people look at and never actually see the problem. The problem here is that two of the five are poor and three of the five are good or like great, right? Yeah. Um, there's no neutral and, and the language around it is effectively self-reinforcing Facebook's belief that they are great, right? It's, it's let's set the system up in a way that will give us a pat on the back. Now, I don't necessarily know that this was, I can't say this was done intentionally, right? I don't know their motivations. I don't know who was in the room who made that decision. But the question we have to ask is if this is what they are releasing publicly, if that's in a public survey, how are they running research internally, right? And when you have companies that are monopoly size and scale and impact, um, when you can create questions and do research that self-reinforce your work, you can then, for example, get interviewed and subpoenaed by Congress and Congress can say, well, for example, that, that example right there, let's say they went to Facebook and they said, well, what do people think about the Facebook messenger experience? You know, and let's say because of those results, they get 80 plus percent saying it's at least good or better. Right. That means Facebook can legally say, well, at least 80 percent of our users believe that the system is good or better. Right. Huh. It's skewing it in a way that these companies can legally protect themselves from any investigation and unless you actually see the core, the questions they ask, the way they did the research, their methodologies, um, which Congress has not cognitively aware enough to ask about, um, then it creates these problems. And it seems like such a small thing, but when you consider it in that larger scope, that's the kind of stuff why I left. It's little tiny fundamental issues that at the scale of influencing billions of people's lives across the world becomes catastrophic. And it's just things like that that I think need to be reconsidered. Uh, and, and, and again, it's not that these companies are intentionally evil. It's that this is a nascent industry. It's a very young industry. And we need to reform it. Um, and, and there's so much good that has come from it. We don't want to come in and crash these companies down. That's not the goal at all. Um, but we need to have a conversation about how we improve it, You know what the problems are, and, and how we move forward. Wow. Yeah. It's it, when you, when you put it that way with regards to these tiny fundamental issues, really adding up over time to create or have the potential to create larger issues too, that affect us at a global level. It really is striking because I think that speaks volumes to our interactions with technology as individuals too, where we might be thinking like, oh, why not just spend a couple more minutes on Instagram? Oh, why not just watch one more video on YouTube? Or, 
oh, why don't I just scroll for a while longer through Facebook? It's at those at those moments, it doesn't seem like a big deal. But I think what, what you're saying is that it's these all these small things that add up to a, a greater problem. So I, I'm wondering how how can we or what can we do to avoid the issues that like you said, are inherently built within the technology like Facebook's five-star call system? Mm -hmm. um, well, I think let's define we first of all, right? Um, <clears throat> if you're talking about we from the general public perspective, I think first of all, watch the movie. Um, the movie is not going to give you the end result. It's not going to tell you here's the ultimate way to resolve things. But it's going to hopefully give people the language to start talking about this with their family and their friends. Um, the general public, you know, as we talked about beforehand, um, this movie, I've had a lot of technologists and academics reach out to me and tell me the imperfections and the details and the nuances. Um, but ultimately, I can tell them that this movie wasn't made for them. Right. Um, this movie was made for the people who aren't in the tech industry. The people whose algorithms do not curate technology news to them, the people who, for example, my friends and family back home in Nebraska, who uh, mostly have never had a immediate need to deeply understand these technologies. That's who this movie is for. It is a first step in what will be a generational conversation. Okay, um, so for the general public, I'd say watch the movie. Um, also, you know, our site, beacontrustnetwork.com has a lot of resources. Uh, you can like, if you are a parent, you can go on there and click our resources, click family resources, find child safety resources, internet safety resources, things like that. We've done our best to curate some of the best resources we found over the last three, four years. Um, we're trying to make it easy for you. So you don't have to rely on extensive hours long Google searches. Um, and there's also resources for technologists and policymakers, et cetera, uh, which we are only expanding as time continues. Um, so beacontrustnetwork.com, if you want to check that out, that should be a good start. Um, for technologists, I think that uh, this conversation has been murmuring for the last five years or so. Uh, it's not brand new to them, and things are changing. However, I also know from working inside these companies that change is not easy, especially if it potentially negatively impacts the bottom line. Uh, and, and that's why it's hard to get some of these initiatives pushed through. So in part, we need the general public to be aware enough to ask for these changes because that will help technologists sell it up the ladder. Um, but also this is why we created Beacon, right? The Better Ethics and Consumer Outcomes Network. Um, people ask about that name all the time. The whole point of it is uh, we do believe regulation is necessary in some parts, but more we believe we need to figure out how to take these ethical dilemmas and translate them into better consumer outcomes. Because if you can figure out how to make them a consumer outcome problem, then they become something you can tie back immediately to revenue. And if we can figure out how to make these problems make companies money, we will change this faster than any regulation. Uh, and, and that's what we really believe in. So, you know, for technologists, I mean, continue having the conversation internally in your company. Um, 
you know, if you want to reach out, we're all over the place trying to find resources to help you sell those ideas up the ladder um, because we realize that you're super busy every single day taking care of your work, uh, taking care of your family once you get home. You know, this is work that uh, requires a helping hand, and that's what we're here for. Uh, and then I guess if we as policymakers uh, also, this is a point at which I hope policymakers uh, put their guard down a little bit uh, because. I think too often policymakers get it in their head that they have to remain strong and they have to know all the answers. Uh, but let's just be honest, uh, you don't. Uh, this is moving so fast that uh, I hope every policymaker listening to this realizes that it's time for you to reach out to a technologist in your life. And if you don't have any, find some. Uh, because uh, these are complex answers uh, and, and many people have been working on this, not just myself. Plenty of people have been working on this for years, some decades. Uh, and we're ready to start helping you figure out how to help us. Uh, and so, yeah, that's, I guess, the best response I can give. Well, and I, is, I love what, yeah. what you've done with the creation of Beacon and then also your book, Automating Humanity. It's it's really not only providing awareness to these issues, but then also, as you mentioned before, providing s solutions for improving our interactions with how we use and communicate with technology. And I love what you say too about how it's really going to be this collaboration between, I guess, the general public as well as technologists out there to work towards solutions. I, I've talked to a lot of people in this world and so something that is always uh, a question that I ask myself and that I've asked many people before as well is, uh, why are the big tech companies at fault because, and I guess, I guess with the, to, to preface with that said, how much of our interaction with technology is on us, is our own responsibility versus a, a larger kind of global network potentially controlling our behaviors? Is is that why big tech companies are are supposed should be held responsible for this, or is it more so that we need to control our own tendencies and, and willpower so that we don't get consumed by everything that big tech is throwing at us? Uh, I think it's both. Uh, and, and I think anybody who tells you otherwise is just sensationalist. Um, <laughs> the, the, uh, to be honest, I mean, let's be, let's be real. There's no problem in having a big business. That's not the problem here. People are like, oh, they're monopolies. They have all this money. They need to fund all this stuff. Um, that's not the problem. Uh, the problem is that they've known about these damages for years and have continued to move forward regardless. Um, so they now, I believe, and I think a lot of people believe, as good corporate citizens need to clean up their act. Um, and so there needs to be some accountability put there. And if they're not going to hold themselves accountable, which we have seen repeatedly year after year after year, um, then we need to put some regulation in place. Um, so there, there are parts where big tech needs to be held accountable. And then there are also parts where we individually need to be held accountable. I'm a very firm believer in that. Um, and, and the problem with it is that these are addictions, right? Uh, we're no longer just saying like, oh, people are using the tools a lot. Like they literally used psychological manipulation to addict people, right? Um, and this is especially true for companies like Facebook and Instagram, uh, you know, more, more so than Google. But um, there are also different parts of that within Google's business model and, and others uh, that are 
more manipulative and harder to understand, but they're there. Um, but yeah, I mean, the individual also needs to be held responsible because uh, we can't, I don't think we want to ever devolve into a world where the government tells us everything we need to do uh, or that the uh, corporations tell us everything we need to do, right? Um, so I think it's a little bit of balance of both. Uh, I think there are ways that regulation can help spur this conversation. Uh, and I think there's also points at which we have to understand that uh, to break an addiction is not as easy as a software update, right? Um, yeah. this, this is generational work. And it requires large scale human to human engagement, right? Like what, what breaks an addiction? I'm, I'm a behavioral scientist. What breaks an addiction? It's not a newsletter. It's not a blog post. It's not a movie. What breaks an addiction is some existential event in your life, right? Um, dad wakes up daughter comes in the room and says, daddy, why are you always drunk? Uh, your, your, your spouse gets in a car accident while driving drunk because she, you know, she's been an alcoholic for years and she almost dies, you know, something catastrophic that really touches your heart and then changes the way you care to behave and carry yourself. No addict has ever woken up and said, I'm going to go download an app today because I'm an alcoholic, right? Uh, very, very few. <laughs> Right, um, right. So, so this is this is really a human issue that's going to take us generations to resolve, um, but only created, uh, only only really happened within the last five or ten years. So think about that too. You know that that's why there needs to be definitely some accountability placed on big tech because they intentionally decided to do this and they knew what they were doing. Um, so there is some accountability, a, a big chunk that needs to sit on their shoulders. But then we also have to work day to day within our communities and within our households and uh, move forward. Yeah, uh, it's, it's so important. It's so important. And I, I think it, just being able to constantly educate ourselves on these things. And I love what you say, too, about it being a human issue, because I think sometimes while, yes, I think that the design of technology needs to change to be more uh, people oriented, uh, you know, like the work that the Center for Humane Technology is doing. While that, yes, that is important. I'm also a big believer that it's not just going to take technology to change technology. It really is about tapping into our humanity. And th this actually leads me well to my next question your, your, about your TED Talk want to work for Google, you already do, which I, I love, I love the title of it. But then the, the talk is also very powerful as well. And you mention in, in the presentation, uh, consent on the side of the user. And I, I would love for you to chat about the idea of consent when it comes to our relationship to technology. Sure. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Well, it's a lot to cover there, but let me see. <laughs> still it down a little bit, right? Um, consent, in my opinion, is what has led us to this situation. Um, and not because I'm saying the public is uh, unconsciously just willy-nilly giving out consent all the time um, out of belligerence, but simply because I don't think most people realize what they're actually doing when they click that 
I consent button. Uh, and mostly because, uh, you know, we don't have classes in school that teach us about law and consent and, uh, you know, the dangers of the internet and things like that, right? We, we've never That's really so known. True. Issues. Yeah, we've never known that this stuff w was an issue. It's really only become within the last three to five years that a lot of this new research has come out, you know? Um, and so in the early days of notice and consent, a lot of those notices, those documents, um, were very basic and, you know, you could skim them in a, in a couple paragraphs and it was no big deal. Um, but they have evolved over time as these companies have realized, well, dang, we have a lot of capabilities that we could be doing, but we need to legally protect ourselves. Um, they have evolved to become very dangerous agreements. Um, and I think what often happens, I know what happens, is that most people just click the I consent or I agree button without ever reading it. Um, and, and that's both because by default, we've been able to pretty, you know, historically trust these companies, right? Because they weren't nearly as, um, there wasn't nearly as much like surveillance in the early days of the internet. Um, it was definitely possible, but it wasn't like the intended business model. Uh, and so it's kind of like inching further and further over the years and nobody, we, is the, it's the frog boiling dilemma, right? It's, uh, we got in the pot and it was okay. And then over time the pot has heated up and we didn't really realize it's been heating. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, right now the act of consent, the biggest problems with it, in my opinion, is that you have companies expecting the average human being to, before they, you know, log on, engage with their friends, do whatever they're really there to do, to read these agreements in detail and understand them. Right. Um, these agreements, you know, if you look at the research, they're 20 to 30 minutes long. They're often written at a postgraduate reading level. There's even if you do read them, which I read a lot of them, um, even if you do read them, you almost have no idea what's actually going on, how things are being huh. used. Um, yeah. I've had a lot of people say, well, why don't we create algorithms that can um, scrape these documents and give us summaries and things like that? Well, here's the problem. If the algorithm scraped it, you still wouldn't learn anything because most of it's so hand wavy. It's just like, well, we're going to use your data to improve the service. And um, that's great. But like, what are you actually doing with it? You know, um, so that's something we're working on at Beacon. Actually, we are releasing our private beta of our first product in the next few weeks, um, which is uh, what we're calling Pulse Policy Center. Uh, effectively, what we are trying to do is create a new paradigm of the way that you engage with these companies from a legal perspective. Uh, we are trying to make it, you know, let's say we take it from 0.1% of the population that actually reads any of these agreements. And if we could make it say 5%, we would feel like we've created a revolution. You know, like it's that, that fundamental, that pioneering level is where we're at right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, imagine a world where, how about like when you get a credit card, right? When you get a credit card, that credit card comes with a one or two page statement that says in summary form, here's what's happening. Here's your APR this year. Here's what it'll be after the first year. Here's your transfer balance rate. Here's your da, 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 all this summarized. That's not the full legal agreement that you're consenting to in using this card, but it gives you enough that if you glanced at it, you could have a gut feeling to say, is this good or is this bad?
right? Versus right, right now we have nothing. Um, and so some of the things we're working on is like pushing companies to list how many data points they're collecting, right? Because right now in GDPR and other regulations, it says you need to list everything. Well, if you go to a service like, uh, I think it's PayPal, I was looking at, and you look at some of those, you have a list of like hundreds of data points, right? How does that make that any better? <laughs> you know, <laughs> how does that yeah. make it any better? Okay, I know every yeah. single detail as a consumer, and I think they should, consumers should be able to dig into that level of granularity. But let's be honest, the average person is there for at most 30 seconds. So how do we dump something on them within 30 seconds, they can get a gist. And if they want to dive into something deeper or get the gist and have a gut opinion of, okay, this is okay. Um, so things we're talking about is like, they should, companies should have to list the number of data points they're collecting. They should have to list the number of partners that they are sharing those data points with. Uh, I, we personally believe companies should have to list how many of their partners have had a data breach in the last three years? You know, um, simple things that are in the agreement that you don't ever read, but like, can we create new partnerships without additional knowledge or consent? Simple things like that. And, uh, and then um, also something I'm working with uh, the New York Senate on actually in speaking to members of the Senate about their upcoming data privacy legislation is that I believe there needs to be a reading level on these summaries. And I think it should be eighth grade. You know, in eighth grade is, um, excuse me, eighth grade is a, a bit of a difficult achievement. It requires some work for sure, but it is achievable. And what was eighth grade? Well, why eighth grade? Because eighth grade is the average reading level of the average American. And eighth wow. grade typically is age 13, which would get us down to COPA, right? The child protection laws. Um, and so I point to eighth grade as a reading level for these summaries because not only would it be more accessible to the public, it would also be understandable at that point, right? And and therefore, the consent can actually be given in a much more intelligent and educated way. It's not perfect by any means, but it is a large step forward, in my opinion. Um, so that's kind of stuff that we're working on right now. And, and I'm very excited to start launching some of these solutions that we've been working on, you know, for upwards of three years. Oh my gosh. Uh, thank you so much for doing that too, because you're absolutely right. It, it's these kind of things that I think the general public and myself included, where it's very easy to check that little box that says I consent or I agree and really give no thought as to what you're consenting to. And I think it goes back to what we were saying before about how it's these small actions that contribute to really larger problems down the line. And I know something that you had also talked about in your talk was the idea of owning our own data and mm -hmm. how this is hopefully the, the way of the future where we are not just giving away our data for free for these tech companies to use at, at their own discretion. But we might have the capability to be able to sell our data and, and profit off of that as well. But this, this concept, I think, is it's hard for the average person, I think, to wrap their head around. So how, how do you think, and of course, we don't have to dive into the depths of this too much. That could be a whole other podcast episode. But I guess just to, to touch upon it a little bit, how, how can we own our, our data and how is this done and, and how can it help the issues that are going on in the tech industry? Yeah. 
I'm going to start by saying right now, there is no, there's really no way for you to own your data. Um, what's being worked on, and, and you're absolutely right, this is a whole other podcast, but um, what's being worked on is trying to make data, make sure that it is legally recognized as a financial asset. Um, Wyoming's got some great examples. They actually just had their first, uh, they, they just signed on as a state to their first charter for a digital asset bank, uh, which is a big step in the conversation. Um, wow. That's also that's amazing. It is amazing. Um, how it turns out, we will see. But it's amazing that the conversation is being had. Um, uh, it's also in the movie, you know, I mentioned the data tax idea, which I'm, I'm really happy that they, they gave that some light. Um, that wasn't in the cut in February. So uh, something has changed. And I think part of it is that uh, New York is now talking about a data tax. California is talking about a data tax. Um, it's coming up in, in other conversations. Uh, and, and the reason I, I mentioned that at the time, you know, a couple of years ago when they interviewed me, and I had thought about this for a long time, I talked about it in my book extensively, um, is not because I love the idea of having a new tax, but um, because data whether you want to say it or not, is an asset at this point in history. It is a, an asset. It is the, uh, and it's a financial asset for many companies in many ways. Um, and so a data tax for one um, would require us to consider how data actually becomes a financial asset, right? Um, because we haven't really had that conversation yet. So it would force that conversation. Um, it would, if done right, I believe it would financially incentivize companies to not own all like, and, and own is a tough definition, right? We, we use own your data because it is a publicly accessible conversation point. Um, own in and of itself is a much deeper nuanced conversation we'd have to have. But um, I think it would financially incentivize companies to not store, collect, process, do all these things on their own servers, right? There are, for example, Google came out with a federated model for machine learning uh, several years back. Uh, and, and I think that's a great model to start uh, thinking through how we do this in the future, because <clears throat> what that does is it decentralizes the data. Uh, effectively, the data lives on your machine, you know, your phone, your computer, your whatever it is in the future. Um, and the, the algorithm, does not learn with your data, you have a algorithm that's built on your local machine. And then the output of that algorithm, the, the trained model is then passed back up to the parent model at the company. And that trains based on that. So the data remains on your local machine, um, meaning that we would financially incentivize companies to create better, more privacy protecting models. Right. Um, and that's kind of where I was getting at with it is uh, if we do tax companies and they decide to, let's say, quote unquote, own your data just to make the conversation simple, then there would be billions of dollars, potentially trillions of dollars in tax revenue that would go back to the nations, the people that are creating it, which is great for you know creating jobs. We could leverage that money to uh, upskill and retrain workers. Uh, you know, there's so many things we could do with that money. Um, but if and when they want to get around a tax, which is what most companies do, 
um, then I believe it would incentivize them to create models in which it's more privacy protecting. So to me, if it's done well, a data tax becomes a win-win. Um, and, and there's a lot of complex nuances to that. I understand 100%, and I'm very interested in talking to anyone who wants to talk about that. Um, but I do think we will head that way, and I do think it can create a much better, safer internet um, that still drives plenty of profit to these companies, but just does so in different ways. Yeah, there, there's so much potential just with, with everything you've said today. For our listeners out there, I highly recommend listening to this episode again because there's a lot of great, great things that Joe you were saying that that uh, a lot of good things to digest and really think about and and to really consider the direction that we're going as a society when it comes to our relationship to technology and just how much it's embedded into our lives. I mean, especially today with all the COVID stuff going on. And so I, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join me on the show. And, and just also thank you so much for the work that you're doing. You've done so much with, with getting the word out there about these things through your book, Automating Humanity, through your organization, Beacon, and then most recently being on The Social Dilemma to really talk about these things as, you know, among a collective group of people. And so th thank you so much for all that you're doing. Yeah, thank you for giving me a platform. You know, it's it's only through people like you that I have been able to continue and expand my efforts. So I really appreciate that. Absolutely. Uh, before we head out, I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners. I know you mentioned uh, briefly about Beacon earlier in our conversation, but where can our listeners find out more information about you and your work? Yeah. So the website is beacontrustnetwork.com. A lot of people want to know where they can find us on social and uh, you can't because uh, we don't have them. Uh, we, we believe <laughs> very much in walking the you know, walking the talk. So we do have a LinkedIn profile. If you want to follow that, we haven't really been active on it simply because we are buried right now, um, trying to actually find people to help us out. So if you want to help with some things, reach out, please. Uh, Joe at beacontrustnetwork.com. But in general, yeah, just go to our website, beacontrustnetwork.com. Feel free to email us, reach out. Uh, we'll, we'll continue the conversation that way. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for everyone that reaches out and listens. I uh, really hope that it helps. Perfect. Well, I'll make sure to include the link to that website in our show notes. So listeners out there, just scroll down in the show notes. Highly recommend checking out Beacon. Joe, I have one last question for you. Yeah, what's that? This podcast is, uh, with many of the guests we have on the show, we talk about the importance of deep and meaningful connection, human relationships, human connection, mm -hmm. specifically in the age of technology that we're living in today. And so I'm wondering from your perspective, how do you believe we as a society can better relate to one another? It's a great final question. Thanks. Um, uh, uh, yeah. so, hey, happy, happy, you, happy to throw one at you. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what I do. And, and, and it's also part of why I left the Valley. Um, where I'm from in Nebraska, uh, growing up, people walk on the streets and they look each other in the eyes and they say hello. We have a community. Whether you're a stranger or not, you're part of our community. I think we've lost that. I think a simple way that we can get back to um, you know, some moral principles in our society, uh, we can move forward better is, and I'll say this is a little more difficult now with COVID, um, but it is really to get back to the human to human interactions. You know, uh, we've lost the idea of picking up 
a phone and calling people and talking to them. Voices mean a lot. You can hear emotions. You can really communicate better. A video call can also do that, but also none of this is near as good as doing it in person, right? There is there is something to doing things in person. Um, so, you know, obviously right now, be safe about it. But I think that's the first step that we need is begin to, you know, reconnect with your neighbors and your community members and your your family if you haven't talked to them in a while. Um, let your guard down and, and, and be your honest self because there's too much grandstanding, puffing chests out and, and pushing each other away nowadays. So uh, I think that we need to get back to that kind of stuff and, and opening our hearts a little bit. So, yes, uh, I, could, I couldn't agree more with you, Joe. What a, what a great way to end this episode. R- really, for all of us, all both of us and then our listeners out there is really embracing our communities more. I, I think that's great. So, Joe, thank you so much again for joining us on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. And uh, let's keep in touch. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Relate. You can let me know your thoughts on this episode by going to Apple Podcasts and leaving me a review. Or if you have the Anchor app, feel free to call in and leave a voicemail. I would love to hear from you. You can support this podcast by clicking the link in the show notes. Thank you so much again for tuning in, and I'll catch you all in the next episode.